Welcome, everybody, to our first installation of Conversations With, which is a, a part of the Athlete Enhancement Podcast, where I'm just going to talk with uh, influential people, mind leaders, if you will, you know, in the, in the industry of athlete enhancement. Where I start is actually where it kind of all started for me, and that's with a, a guy that was incredibly influential to me as an athlete, as a coach, uh, as a human, um, and, and really kind of um, bent my career uh, and to the to where it is today, and that's my my longtime coach Judd Logan. Judd Logan uh, himself is a highly accomplished athlete. He uh, was a four time Olympian. He broke the American record I think thirteen times, um, and was really just a force for several decades in the track and field community. And then he transitioned in the mid nineties over into coaching, where for a little while he continued. Uh, training and coaching, and that's kind of when I was there with him. So I got to train through two Olympic cycles with him, which was, uh, of, of course, game changing for me. Uh, and then he be, he has since become one of the most uh, accomplished coaches in track and field history. So he he has multiple Olympians, multiple All Americans, uh, multiple national champions, and and now multiple um, national championships as a team. So he's he's quite a successful guy, quite a great guy. What is interesting or a little bit different about this podcast is that he was he's sort of known as this this very very physically gifted athlete. So you know at 285 pounds or 82 pounds, you know maybe 275 pounds. I can't remember. He says in the podcast he runs under a four five forty, which is incredibly incredibly powerful. Um, I've seen him do 365 pounds in the clean for a touch and go set of eight, which is kind of unmatched. I've never seen anything like that. So he's very physically gifted. And and we could do an entire podcast about strength training. He himself was was trained by the the famous Charles Poliquin for a long time, who was a huge influence to him and, and also a huge influence to me. But instead of focusing there, I wanted to focus on an attribute of Judd that is just as important to his success as an athlete and a coach as his physical talents, but a lot of people don't know that he has it. And that is sort of this, um, you know, mindset, positivity, focus that he has that's incredible. I got to watch it in the trenches, you know, throwing outside in February in, in Ohio. Um, I got to watch it, you know, in the middle of competitions. I got to watch it, you know, getting ready for, you know, maxing out on the squat, um, I got to see it over long periods of time and in, in the most intense moments. This, for me, I think is one of the things that that made Judd who he is. And you know, as we all know, mindset and all the things around around that are super important for athletes' performance. And so, we focus on this one to start, and then we sort of kind of go wherever the conversation needs to go. But we get to talk about a lot of things. Um, I also brought on uh, one of Judd's uh, favorite athletes, one of my, or maybe my favorite person, my wife, Jackie, who for Judd was a 13-time All-American, a five-time national champion. I think she, she had two national records at the collegiate level for 12 years, if I, if I remember correctly. And then, of course, represented the United States on the 2004 Olympic team. Uh, I could do an entire podcast just on on her mental ability because I think one of her standout qualities that made her such a good athlete um, was this whole mindset, positivity, focus, 
um, competitiveness that she's got. So she is a, 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 a wonderful addition to the podcast that I hope you guys enjoy. And so without further delay, I, uh, I bring you Judd Logan and Jackie Ohm. Welcome. Uh, we're actually kind of where it all started, I guess, for me. Um, Bill Gallagher's office. Sitting, sitting in Ashland, Ohio at this very, very old uh, track that has as much dust as I remember it before, but it sort of brings back some memories. But this is literally kind of the place uh, where I met you, where I met Bill Gallagher. This is actually where I met Charles Poliquin. Um, who, truth be told, was kind of the guy that started, you know, planting that seed in my head of, you know, learning more about the body and mechanics and anatomy and neurology and all that stuff. This was here, 1996. He came into the fall and was with us for several weeks, actually. Um, I watched him do ART on you and then do, like, pull-ups, and then he was helping with your clean. I remember he worked on breaker radialis. We don't need to go all the way into that. But for me, this is kind of like the starting place. I also met my wife here. Who's the who is the guest uh, speaker today here? This is where I came and met Bill Gallagher. Literally, there was a couch here. Mm. Did my visit, and that was my first experience with Ashland University Track and Field. To yeah. me, this is still his office, yeah. right? <laughs> I, I mean, he's been gone. Yeah. I mean, I've been head coach 15, 16 years, but this is like still his. I still find folders and pictures and things that are his. That I'm just reminded on a daily basis. Well, as I saw the pictures you posted yeah. like a week ago. Yeah, I found them in a in a file case in, in a locked drawer. I'm like, oh, gosh, I don't know who any of these people and are. And Bill was. knew who everybody was. Of course he did. <laughs> yeah, that's how he rolled. Um, but, yeah, so for me, medically, mechanically, strength training, all that kind of stuff, meeting my wife, everything was happened here. Um, but for you, where I wanted to start, you, I'm sure you've been on like a million podcasts and, um, you know, you were a very successful athlete. If I remember correctly, four Olympic teams, it was, did you break the American record 28 times? No. Um, between the, uh, hammer throw and the weight throw, I broke it 13 times. Okay. This okay. is more than, more than I have all Americans, but that's fine. That's okay. We'll keep talking about that. Um, so, and you also were kind of, I don't know if you were aware of this cause we've never talked about it, but you were, you were known in the track community as being just freaky talented physically. And that's cool. And, and I've, I've been, I've been lucky enough to train with you and watch you do some pretty freaky stuff. But the, the thing that I, I wanted to start off with today is something that you're not, I don't think people are aware of it, but I think it's equally as important to your success as your, your genetic gifts. And that's your ability to to focus, and that's both in the moment, like super intense, and then also being able to maintain a sustained level of focus for a four-year goal or an eight-year goal or whatever the case may be. And that's kind of where I wanted to start because, you know, I got to train with you for your 2000 Olympics um, run. So I was coached by you before that. I got I trained with you for that, and then I, I was obviously coached by you and trained with you um, all the way through 04. So that was another one that we sort of did. So really two Olympic teams. And I, I was able to just basically watch you do this. Like you had already made three teams when you went into the 2000. And I I will die on this hill. I think you would have made a fifth team because I watched you train for four years or yeah. you know two and a half years and you were absolutely ready um, short of like probably a little bit of a brachial radialis um, tear. You were pushing the ball, though. You were getting your job done. <laughs> I, yeah. But 
so I just kind of want to start there with with the focus. I don't. I guess the the first question I would have is: Were you aware that you had that ability at the time, or even looking back, did did you even think like, oh man, I I guess I did focus pretty well. I was an ADD kid, so growing up. So we already brought it up. That was the ironic thing. Yep. That is the ironic thing. He's amazing at focusing and then with the ADD kids. So yeah, go for it. I was one of the first kids in the state of Ohio ever to be in a Ritalin trial. Uh, my parents couldn't take it. Um, I was just insane, out of control, getting thrown out of school, um, those kind of things. But then I had some moderate success in high school, not at the level of my father, not at the level of my brother, Jeff, who went and was recruited by every Division One program in the country um, to play football. But I was recruited by Kent State, and I grew up in the 80s. I grew up at a time where the drinking age was 18, and I didn't drink in high school. And I went to college, and I took those freedoms and liberties um, way too extreme. And so when people say, well, what'd you do in college? And I said, I threw 196.10, 60 meters, made one NCAAs, and finished 17th. And they said, well, how did you, what happened? And that all came with Al Shotterman. When Al Shotterman. This is one of the greatest stories I've ever heard, by the way. Al so Shotterman, when Al Shotterman came my senior year, he came in January. So we had January, February, March, April, May. We had five months together. And in that time, I learned more about training than I did in all my high school years, all my previous college years. And, of course, I was behind academically, so I had another year. And he goes, why don't you help me out and just keep throwing? And I'm like, why? He goes, I don't know. Just give yourself some focus. So I kept throwing, and I kept learning, and now we had a full year together. In that next year of having him there, um, I threw 222 feet. Okay. So that's where you were – okay, I, I had you in, in college. but <laughs> Yeah, so I threw 222 feet, and it's a year away from the Olympics, and I got my degree. I'm getting married to my wife, who come this uh, next November will have been married 40 years, high school sweethearts. And so I, I think I'm done. I've got a job in Bristol, Connecticut at ESPN. Oh, that's right. Uh, for I think the salary was eighteen thousand dollars, but it had full major medical benefits. That had to be early in the ESPN days. They weren't even in Ohio yet. They yeah. were coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were coming, but they were sports broadcasting, and that's what I wanted to do. And I went over to say goodbye to. You Al actually would be an incredible at that. Just in hindsight, I would have like, loved no, now it. Now I know you would have been really good at it. I would have loved it. And so going over to see Coach Shotterman to tell him that I can't believe that we don't have more time together. We were a year and a half together, and I went from 196 to 222 feet, and I threw the weight uh, 59 feet in, in college, and then now I was at 67. Which so is was, close to the world I record. Was, I was 67-67, right? And But with 67 meters in the hammer, I was ranked 17th in the United States, even though the American record – was uh, 244 feet yeah. held by Dave McKenzie. And so Coach Shotterman basically said, the story goes, <laughs> this isn't he the goes, <laughs> you know, the Olympics are next year in 
Los Angeles. I said, yeah, so cool, man. It's been so long since it's been in the United States. And he just looked right at me and he said, how would you like to go? And I just deadpan. I said, how did you get tickets already? <laughs> I had no idea he meant me. I never looked at myself at that kind of talent. I never had a, an aspiration or a dream. I had a dream of the NFL. And then I realized you have to be pretty freaking good to go to the league. And I wasn't at that level in high school. I wasn't at that level in college. But post-collegiately, under Coach Shotterman's tutelage, he said, give me the next year of your life, put your career on hold, and I'll put you on the Olympic team. Which is a big ask at that point. It is a big ask because now I'm getting married in two months. You got married, you had a job lined up, and, and I have to go you home. didn't think that the Olympics was, was even nope. in your sphere. Now, I, I definitely want to focus on the the intensity and your ability to, to focus, but this is a, gr a really, really important uh, sidebar here. So for, for those of you listening, what's really odd about Judd, and, and I was around athletes my whole life. Uh, you know, I competed at a pretty decent level, and then I was also a collegiate coach for years. Judd, oddly, works really hard, um, incredibly hard. Uh, we've got more stories about this later on. But he's also talented. And if anyone that's been around athletes for a long time, I don't know what the psychology is, but a lot of times you're only working up to the level that you have to. So it was actually sitting right outside this building or this this room i looked at you one day we were training we done this on this like crazy heavy squat cycle and i was like why why do you work hard you know because he's got you know what was your what was your 40 time four, four. five one by the pro scouts yeah 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 at 275, 275 or whatever yeah. whatever so incredibly talented, and but he still works as hard as anybody that I'd been around. And he looked at me and he goes, well, I didn't know I was talented until you were out of college, right? Correct. So this is tying right in with this Al Shotterman story. His brother Jeff, who's also a great guy, uh, was, I mean, in Ohio, even now, if you talk to somebody mm. that followed football when Jeff was a high school athlete, they will tell stories about him like unstoppable, like unstoppable, like, like legendary stories about his brother, Jeff, who then went on to Ohio State, had, had a successful career there. Uh, I think he ran behind Archie Griffin for two years. And then was he a Heisman candidate for two years? He was a Heisman candidate after his junior year. And then in his senior year, he hurt his ankle and missed seven games in the middle of the season, came back for the Michigan game and the Orange Bowl and only played in four games the entire year and ended up getting drafted by the Baltimore Colts at the time and just realized that that ankle injury never fully healed. Um, he never had any type of surgery, just had seven weeks of recovery and rest and what they knew about how to fix stretch ligaments back then was about zero. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but so Jeff, the, the story there is Jeff was basically a legend in Ohio. So and and anyone that is near a university like the Ohio State, I mean, the Buckeye fever just permeates every single thing, right? And when there's a home game, this is why my wife and I do all of our shopping at that time because nobody's out. Nobody. So his brother is this legendary person and he basically is just in the shadow of him for most of his career and didn't realize it. And so I've thought about this a lot because you may have never learned how to work as hard as you could work without having um, without having been so ignorant about it until, I mean, you were essentially 20, 21 years old when you realized, well, oh, shit. And you basically, like, pulled open, pulled up the hood and realized that you have a Ferrari engine 
and you had no idea. You no thought clue. you were driving a Honda Accord. I did. Which, yeah, so we both thought we were driving Honda Accords. It turns out I was driving a Honda <laughs> Accord. <laughs> but anyways, so just, just for everyone listening, one of the reasons that Judd was so successful is because he's a super, super hard worker, and he's really physically talented. So he brought it up with, with Jeff and that not knowing you know, that, oh, man, I could maybe go to the Olympics. That is incredibly significant, at least if I were to write a book about Judd, in his psychology and his approach to training, it, he would never would have been as successful if you know he just knew he was that talented early on. I would have never found the focus for hammer training if it wouldn't have been for the weight room. The weight room is what taught me the level of intensity and the level of focus. And that all came from Al Shotterman pushing me beyond what I thought was possible. What I thought was hard work was not even close to what that guy pushed me to. We used to do these workouts where we would finish squatting. And back in the day, eight to 10 sets of squats was nothing. And you would go 10, 10, 8, 8, 6, 6, 5, 5, 3, 3, 3, and, you know. Oh. Finish with three sets of 10 or something. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no. Then we would go over to this universal leg press machine, and he would take this, this piece of foam, and he would put the pin in, and he would say, give me 10. And I would bang out 10 against this piece of foam as hard and as fast as I can. And then he would drop it down to seven-eighths of the entire stack and say five, and I would do that, and then he would pull it out, and he would put the pin at like a third of the stack and say 20. Classic drop set. Yeah, and I would just I would bang them out, and I just started seeing this massive growth and development in the quads, the VMO, the traps. He had great quads. And, he had great quads. And I was, quads. <laughs> I was checking the paint daily. I was checking the paint just to kind of see – Holy smokes, hard work really does matter. Like, I lifted weights my whole life and never had gains like this. And so I said, wonder if I took that same focus from the weight room and I started putting that into my throwing. And then all of a sudden, we go to the Jesse Owens meet in May and I throw 74-44-244-7, a new American record that lasted five days because Bill Green broke Bill it. Green, yeah. Um, and then I ended up going to the Olympic trials and coach Shotterman was competing right alongside me, he finished fifth. And, um, he had made a comeback, you know, he had been in the oh, 70, right. he had been in the 70, he was the Olympics. fastest, the 70 meters in fastest American history, right? I think he still American is. History. Yeah. Under three years. Ugh. Wow. Under three years. <laughs> Hold on, let me let me count. Oh wait, I never threw seventy. I yeah, forget. There you go. I keep forgetting. Sixty nine ninety two for anyone. The that clock's cares. still running. The clock is still running. I think I'm gonna yell. Yeah. Still time. Oh god. Just <laughs> so, my back started hurting just thinking about that. You know, having him there and making that Olympic team, and then where that focus was personified was walking in that Olympic stadium for the opening ceremonies. In L. A. In L. A. Last ones in the United States team. 100,000 people in the L.A. Coliseum, millions more watching on TV. And there's little pieces of asphalt falling from the ceiling as we're getting ready to go out. And I said, holy crap, we're having an earthquake. And Mac Wilkins puts his hands on my shoulder. And he goes, don't worry, you'll know why in a second. Mac Wilkins had made four at that point, probably. Three. And, yeah. and, and Max, you know, I mean. We walk le out and everyone in the stands is on their feet stomping. U.S.A. U.S.A. Oh, man. 
and they were causing pieces of the Coliseum to to small like pieces of yeah. dust and brick. And we wandered out onto that field behind that American flag. And Jackie, you know what that feels like in those opening ceremonies to realize that you're not only manifesting years of hard work, but you're representing the red, white, and blue. You're representing the greatest country in the world with the greatest Olympic history. And that regardless of what happens from that point on, that can never be taken away from you. Yeah. Yeah, you're I, never a former Olympian. Says so right in their creed. You're uh, uh, <laughs> you're an Olympian for life. Yeah. And there's not former national champion. You're national champion. You got anything to add on that? No, I think I have a similar feeling from that experience, right? So we're on our little venture out. We're not the last team because we're in Greece. And 2004. I remember literally walking out the tunnel and up to the right hand side like looking up there was this man and his son and they had american flags and they were waving them so hard that i literally thought the same thing like i'm not here just representing mm -hmm. me i'm not here just representing ashland university i am representing the red white and blue like i have usa on my chest and i have it for a reason and i think that's you know part of the sport that just has always stuck with me and so it's always fun to talk to other people who have done that and it it always comes up at some point it's i don't know something i wish everybody could experience no once. it's awesome so what do you got, do you got there the, the back of this little thing that the olympic team sent me for my keychain it says <laughs> once an olympian always an olympian never former never i don't know What's i might have the finish of that but I don't just, have the finish to that because I'm the only no, one. No, mine's, I have the uh, U.S. Olympians Association card. It doesn't <laughs> yes. have that um, creed on it. But I do have a number, so I'm official. What's that say on the back? My eyes can't see. Never former, never. Never passed. Never passed. You're not a past Olympian. You're not a former Olympian. You're an Olympian for life. And I, no one had to tell me that. I knew that at that moment. Jesse Owens's granddaughter ran the Olympic torch in and passed it off to Rafer Johnson, one of the greatest decathlon uh, in, in the world, um, world record holder at the time. He transverses all the way up to light the torch. Edwin Moses gives the Olympic creed, and we were just off and running. And I just said to my wife, I said, I miss making the finals by 14 inches, but... I'm going to do that again. I don't yeah. care if it takes another four years. I can't. I mean, and so that's how I found that focus. It was always in me. It was taught to me by my father. I had seen my brother do it. I just never held myself to that same level. Well, it's funny because your, your, your dad and, um, you know, I know, I know at least Jeff and I know at least, um, one of your other brothers, Andy, Andy, they, I mean, they, they all have that there. You just had it. You were just kind of, you know, just bouncing around and, and doing a bunch of stuff. But it was there. I, I, I find I didn't know this. I find it interesting that uh, you learned that in the weight room. And and that's kind of like I, one of the stories that, that I was thinking of when I was preparing for this was when we would max out. Like you basically taught me how to max out. And so what basically what we would do is kind of funny. The question was like when Judd was training, if we're going to max out in the clean or the, the, the front squat or whatever it was, someone had to be on chair detail. 
right? And what chair detail was is essentially Judd would sit in an aluminum chair. He would leave, and I, I can actually, I'll go into this because this is relevant, I think, for people listening to the podcast wanting to get better at what they're doing. He would leave the weight room, okay? So to me, um, he was just kind of like getting ready, and it wasn't like he was huffing and puffing or doing this thing. He would just leave the weight room, and then he would come in and sit down, and then he would basically like get ready for the squat that I'm thinking of. He's putting on knee wraps. He always put them on by himself, and he would basically just stare the bar down, and there was just a switch that would flip when he would stand up. So then you could just – like the intensity was just radiating off of him, and then he would kick the chair – Donkey backwards kick. donkey kicked the chair backwards and that was the chair detail because we didn't want anybody to like get hit with a chair <laughs> so then he'd you know go to the bar and you know in super intensity smash your chest against the bar you know, you know and then get under the bar and then lift so watching that that's like obviously intense focus that you would sustain for 30 seconds or 60 seconds at a time and that, that, that i guess that makes a lot of sense that that's where you learned that i just didn't know that al shotterman was the one that was teaching this to you yes through essentially pushing you beyond these these mental barriers trying to find the actual physical barrier right where where shit starts to break and he was able to just show you, like, look, you think you're working hard, but you're not actually working hard. We need to keep doing this. Yeah. That's cool. You know, some one of the things people, I mean, my kids, when we're on Van Rides Home, they always want the stories. And He's so, a great storyteller for so those of you. one of the people in the van once said, what are you proudest of from your training days? And I said, I don't think I missed more than four or five lifts my entire career from 1984 to 2000 i didn't miss lifts like if the squat called for 625 for five i got it for five and if the next workout called for 675 for a triple and in my mind i knew i was beat up from training my knee was sore before I ever got under that bar, I said to myself, this is a 675 double all day. And do you, don't you dare push yourself to the point to try to just show people that you're indestructible. And I would nail the two and I would sit there and I would do this like a computer program. I would run a systems check. And if it was a go, it was a go. And then I would cross the two out and put, I got three, but I never had a three written in my training book that I had to cross out and put two, maybe four or five times over the course of 16 years. So, so for, I mean, basically what that's telling me is that's showing that you, you had a, a very, very high sensitivity to your body's capabilities. I did. And uh, we, Jackie and I always would, would just sort of laugh in the beginning when you don't really know, like, you know, you're sitting there like, oh, okay, you know, you just squatted like 315 for three or whatever. And you're like, coach, what do I need to go up to? And you'd always be like, oh, uh, Jackie, you're going up 10 pounds, Rich, you're going up uh, 40. And right. I'm like, 40? Shit, okay. But he could just sort of see it. And that I, that obviously just mirrors the, the body awareness that you had. You also didn't have tremendous injuries no. in your career. And, and I actually think that, I mean, now on the medical side of it, knowing your body's capabilities is, is a rare thing, but incredibly important because if you think that you could hit that for five and you're grinding them out with this terrible technique, shit starts to break. That's when you find that physical barrier where it starts to break. So that's interesting 
um, that you were able to sort of just sort of know that going I just into it. never got underneath the bar in bench squat, deadlift, clean, whatever, unless I knew 100% how many I was going to do and that I was going to make it. And then you flip the switch and you just make it happen. You know, I attest a lot of my injury-free training to having really poor technique in the beginning. <laughs> that I learned I that I, I, I Al Shotterman never corrected my form in the deadlift, in the squat, in the clean. It was just a matter in the beginning is that pick it up off the floor. And, you know, I'm sure my back was rounded and I just right. developed this back of steel. Yes. That when I learned proper technique, wrists under the bar, elbows out in a power clean, how to scoop, how to hit a second pull, all of this stuff that I learned from talking to Olympic lifters and talking to uh, Charles Poliquin and people like that. In my post-84 Olympic career, I started zeroing in more on technique. And then I realized I'd been doing it wrong for so long, but I was, you know. Well, the, the, I always this is a funny story. I don't know if I've told you this, but I I, I frequently reference you when I'm talking about um, factors that go into injury. So there's, there's a bunch of factors I don't need to go into today, but but the the thing that decides whether it's an injury or not is what I call tissue tolerance. So if you exceed a given tissue's tolerance for some kind of force, whether it's compression, tension, or torsion, or whatever, it breaks. Right? It starts to sort of uh, distort. So <laughs> I always say that, like, everybody's tissue tolerance is different because people say, oh, well, I watch so-and-so, you know, he does 20 sets of squats. And I'm like, all right, well, he's not built like you, mm-hmm. right? Or you're not built like him. So I said, and everybody's tissue tolerance is different. And I said, for instance, I go, I had pretty good technique. I was like, but, um, you know, my, my coach, Judd, he does a little, you do you do a little bit more of like a good morning-ish kind of squat mm-hmm. there, you know. With his technique, like my back would sort of break, but his, because the joke is his discs are made out of Kevlar, my discs are made out of cotton candy. So, like, if I have the same technique, my discs just explode and his are totally fine. So, I always use you as as kind of an example that, like, if I lifted with that technique once now, I would just be wrecked for for days. And you're just like, eh, whatever. Feels no, so- but Coach told me that story. <laughs> I remember the first time my back ever started to hurt ever mm. in college was you just looked at me and you're like, you just haven't had long enough to lift wrong for your back to get strong enough. And right. I was like, what does he mean? And I mean, <laughs> now, unfortunately, means. I totally get it. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I have terrible tissue tolerance and an, an, an awkwardly long torso, which mechanically is not very good for stabilizing. But anyways, I don't want to get sidetracked. So I remember <laughs> Charles Poliquin in the same thing. Um, we were at a seminar and someone said, I've been lifting for, for nine years and my bench has been stuck between 270 and 285. What do I need to do to bench 300? And he said, better jeans. Yeah. And the kids like better genes. He goes, like, yeah, you should have picked better parents. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of genetics that go into who you are as an athlete. It's that people don't realize is that genetic gifts. I I was just telling the story the other day. I've been coaching 26 years and I've had maybe two athletes in those 26 years that I feel like scraped their head against their genetic ceiling. 
Garrett Gray was a kid that came in at 52 meters, threw over 70, won the national championship for me, came in as a walk-on. The second one's Megan Montoni. That that girl could have yeah, trained for five more years and would have never thrown another inch. Mm-hmm. Like she maximized everything she had in the time period that she was here. So what I believe is when people use genetics as an excuse, I call bullshit. Yeah, no, and that, and that actually it was again <laughs> right in here. So I my, my story for for people listening that didn't know, I was third in the country in high school in the hammer throw. Right, this is not a very common event, so it's nowhere nearly as impressive as being third quarterback in the country or the third best hundred meter dash runner. However. I, in my head, thought, okay, if I'm third in high school, then I go to college, I can be third in college, and then when I go out of that, then I'll just be third in the country, and then eventually third in the world. Totally ridiculous, like psychosis-level weird, but I would push myself because that was kind of the standard. And so it wasn't until uh, my sophomore year, I wasn't doing the as, as well as I, as I wanted, so there was a gigantic gap between where I thought I was supposed to be and where I was, and that created this in, incredible... Um, flood of frustration and negativity and all that stuff. And it's because I thought, I had the opposite that you did. I thought I was talented, more talented than I was, whereas you didn't realize that you were Mm -hmm. as talented as you were. So for me, we're testing right out here doing two-foot-three hop and standing long jump and 40-yard dash and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just getting my ass kicked by all these, like, kids that just came in as freshmen. And it was it was then that I just realized, like, hey, dude, you're not quite as talented as you might think that you are. And that, of course, was really frustrating for me, but it then shifted the focus from, all right, I need to make, you know, be a world record holder to I need to get as much out of the genes that I have as 100%. possible. And, you know, tying in with what what you had said, uh, Bill Gallagher, uh, another huge influence to both me and Jackie, uh, he didn't care if you were a sub four minute miler or a seven minute miler he cared how close to your genetic potential were you getting and i've seen him in tears watching a girl run like a a 730 mile which is terrible right but for him he's just like all right well he's not built he always would use eric berry who was a really good 1500 mm-hmm. meter uh, like middle distance guy for us. Well, Eric was I don't I don't remember his accolades, but was like really good at the national level. Okay, well he's just wired differently. And if you had the other one that he uses is a guy named Matt Wackerly that was not nearly as physically talented, but like Megan Montoni, um, you know, is working super super hard to get to that. So for me, that ended up being for the rest of my career. It's like all right, what is that like that invisible number in the sky? And how close can I get to it? No, there's no way to know it. No. But it's just like, okay, you know, when I'm throwing perfectly well, the weather's great, I got good sleep, you know, had had the perfect meal, you walk in, the wind's blowing in the right direction, how far is that metal ball going to go? That was kind of like the goal for the rest of my career. But my point is, if you're a sophomore or junior in college and you're using the genetics as your excuse, it's way too early in that process to see that into a full manifestation well psychologically you're done yeah like just stop because you're literally out at that point if you're if you're already going like oh well i just don't have the genetics for it i'm not big enough you're just hanging out strong enough my parents didn't do athletics like so and so that's on the team and yeah i don't buy it yeah i mean i guess on the, the the mental side of things when I see an athlete do that, so that you never did this, an athlete that I worked with for a little while named Travis Nutter, who was a really good uh, hammer thrower. I'll tell a story about him in a second. But it was it was really accepting responsibility for 
your successes and your failures. And, and the you, you were always really, really good with this. And then Travis, the story I remember with him, we had just been kicking the shit out of him in the weight room, and he was going to open at Mount Sac, right? So Mount Sac is this really, really um, good co- – it's the first big competition back then. April. Yep. April with with tons of um, talent that are going in there, especially for the hammer throw. And he shows up and actually has his, his PR for his opening meet ever, the best one ever. And I'm on the phone with him, and I was like, hey, that's not bad. He goes, yeah, I should have thrown farther. And I go, yeah, but, I mean, it's it's your – it's your opening PR. I'm trying to just be, you know, positive. And he goes, yeah, but I, I should have thrown farther. So there's one. And then I go, well, dude, we've been kicking the crap out of your leg. I mean, your legs had to have been beat down. I mean, we're, whatever. I can't remember what we're doing with the squats. And, he's, and he goes, yeah, I should have thrown farther. And I can't remember what the third one was, but I gave him three outs. And he's like, dude, no, fuck off. I, I, I literally, I warmed up better. I should have thrown farther. So I gave him all the reasons in the world on why he should be able to sort of accept that performance. And he's like, no. And then I've had other athletes that didn't do well when I was coaching. They're like, oh, well, coach beat me up too much. Or, you know, I wasn't recovered like I was supposed to be. And I was like, you're never going to be good in my head. Yeah. Like, just thinking, like, your, men, your, your mental sp- space is just. I had a bad system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, his coach better have thrown farther. But I think that's part of what we learned at Ashland right so I came in knowing literally almost nothing and that's something that we learned then right so it got to the point I mean even at 20 years old that I was 110 percent responsible for what happened like I knew coach was going to have me ready I knew my training was going to be good so I just had to show up and do my job like that was the part I had to do so I think that's something that a lot of athletes don't get maybe because their coaches may not get it and may not know how to show that or teach that or give that to them. Well, I would say that she's one of the more coachable people you've probably ever met in your entire oh, 100%. career. percent. So Jackie, like, so if, if Judd had to pick between the two of us, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, um, Rich. Uh, yeah, I, I was, I was the athlete that always had to know why we were doing it. It wasn't because I ever doubted Judd, not, not even, not once, but I have to understand the mechanics behind what's going on. Which is why you, who, who you are today. Sure. But at the time... <laughs> It was a little annoying. Yeah. Judd had this gorgeous mane of hair when I started working here, when I started training here, and then it what, started graying and falling yeah. out. <laughs> By October, my freshman year, it was. Do like you remember just, the ritual? You, no, no. I want to get into this because, okay, well, <laughs> well, let me finish the, the thing about Jack. Jackie. Was basically just show up, just tell me what to do. Like, I, all right, Judd obviously knows what he's doing. I'm just going to do whatever he tells me to do. Whereas, you know, I, if he said, oh, okay, you need to push the ball left, so I'd be like, okay, well, what is he trying to get me to do and why? Right? Whereas with her, she's just like, all right, I'll, I'll push the push ball, the ball left. left. Great. Now, the rich rules, we can, we can get into this, because when you were saying that you you were getting ready to to lift and you were talking about your mental state there, and you, you, you said – um, when you were saying like I never really missed more than like three or four exercises, and, and you're getting in your your headspace, I wanted to to talk like what does your internal dialogue sound like? Because for me, back to that that time period that I just mentioned, where I was having to literally, it was probably a an eighteen month to two year period where I had to accept that I wasn't the physical talent that I thought I was. I mean, this I'd been training for like ten years at this point, was dead set on going to the olympics or whatever and that create that 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 process and then the the gap between my where i thought i was supposed to be and where i was mixed with um the only thing that i actually had i, I thought on a high level was my ability to feel my body mm. 
So we would get done throwing. We're all hammer throwers. If, if people listening to the podcast didn't know that, it, it's a 16-pound ball or a 4-kilo ball for the women. You spin around three or four times, and you throw it as far as you can. That's about as deep as I need to get into it. Um, so for me, I would I had that, that that gap between where I was and where I wanted to be or where I thought I would be, and I would finish a throw, and I know this now after training with people and coaching people, I feel like I have a massive amount of information coming in that a lot of athletes don't have. Correct. Like, I remember, you know, uh, AG one time was like, oh, this was great. I think it was, maybe it was like ashwagandha or something that Poliquin, the supplement Poliquin told us to take. He goes, oh, it's amazing. I can feel where my foot comes down in four. And I was like, I can tell you which position my shoulder's in, which elbow's here, where I'm coming down in four. We even tested it. Like, I could be like, oh, I landed at 270, 270, 300, and I could just yep. tell them every time. So I would let the ball go out of my hand, and I would get this flood of information. Now, if you're a freshman or a sophomore in college, most of that information is bad. Right. It's like, oh, you dropped your left shoulder. You bent your left arm. You know, you didn't get a good heel in three. You know, you, for you didn't pick the ball up early on the entry. So I would come out, and I would have 100 negative things and I couldn't even hear the positive thing. So I had this terrible voice in my head saying like, oh, you did this wrong, this wrong, this wrong, this wrong, and this wrong, right? And I'm also the kind of person that I want, like, don't tell me what I did well, just tell me what I need to fix. Like, just give me useful information. So Judd was ready to kill me, probably. He doesn't have to answer that question. And he he created the rule. And the rule was, was it, I had to, I couldn't say anything. Five seconds. Five seconds, okay, that's what it was. Because when you threw... As the ball was in the air, he would turn to me and False. give me three negative yeah. things that happened on the throw, and then the ball would hit. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, first off, five seconds. Because for me, you asked what my thought process was. My greatest attribute was that I have this little Betamax, VHS, DVD, or SIM card. What, what generation are you from? Right, sure. And as soon as my throw goes... I have this kinesthetic awareness of what just happened to my body. And then I hit this little button. I replay the throw. I can clearly see everything that happened. I have a kinesthetic awareness, not as keen as yours, but sensory perception that the center was shifted and that I knew what are my things to help me get back to fix middle. And so Mine was this thing, and if the first thing that I thought of was three negative things or I verbalized three negative things. It reinforces it. It reinforces it, and you never get back to the positive. So the rule was with Rich is he had to wait five seconds, tell me one good thing he liked about the throw, and then give me two bad things that he wanted to, to work on. It worked. Yeah, no, no, no. That, you, that. you dramatically increased your level of production to the point where you were a four-time All-American and national champion. Yeah, no, I mean, that was that was... That was the, that was basically like a, a slap in the face to start changing the internal dialogue. So, I always tell people like when when we can all talk about this too. When when we're you're going to a meet, I I tell people that you have to constantly be um, training the subconscious brain. And you can do this by focusing on positive things in your training or focusing on positive things that have happened. Because when you're throwing, so like let's think about like your the throw is very, very quick. You're doing three or four turns. In the middle of the throw, we're talking milliseconds mm. here. If you, man, you just didn't get a good catch in three, you have 
milliseconds to decide, am I going to finish the throw or am I going to can it, right? And if you've trained your subconscious brain, if you've, if you've managed that internal dialogue, even if you catch badly in one of the throws or something goes wrong, you can actually recorrect it and sometimes throw farther. 100%. But that never happens if you've got the voice in there saying, like, oh, you missed that. Yep, gone. Like, shut it down. Gone. You just can't do it. So, so do, do you remember times when you competed and you had that, like, that dialogue, or you, you as well, Jax? Like, yeah, and, and that came from Stuart Toger. Stuart Toger said, look, the hammer, when you'll learn to throw really far, you create a chaos, and in this chaos will come times where things are chaotic. When that happens, you need to change and speed up and find a way to catch that fourth turn and just stand up and finish and know that the next one's going to be better. And then when I would do that, and the same was happening to athletes all around me, except they were dumping it at the third turn or throwing it into the cage, the ball would go 76 meters, and I would just smile to myself and walk past my competitors and go, holy crap, that was bad. But if that's 76 meters, watch out, fellas. <laughs> Game over. Yeah. Game over for the mentally weak. The ones who weren't buying that, Lance Steele. He wasn't buying that noise. He was yeah. too smart to fall for that. And I would see him just start to get that. Mm -mm. He has like the most um, placid intensity of maybe any athlete that I've ever been around. It's this really weird. Like he's he's just. It's very zen. Equanimity is what I was going to say. That but all of a sudden becomes this most explosive movement and literal rage. I literally have goosebumps. Rage. Mm -hmm. But it, it doesn't matter what sport you're involved in. Uh, if you go back and you look at, um, it has to be 96, and I won't tell the whole story, but basically Lance is you know top two in the world. Um, I've actually had been lucky enough to, to hear him tell me this story. But look up the men's hammer final um, of 1996, and you will actually see this, okay? You'll see Lance um, throw. He's, we're, we're in Atlanta, or he's in Atlanta. And basically, he in, in the qualifying round, it is amazing. First row, boom, qualifies for the, the final that's coming up the next uh, two days later. And then you get three throws, and then they take the top um, – I know, they, they take the top nine, normally eight in the Olympics, to the final, well, he basically fouls the first two throws. So now he's down to one throw only. And if you want to talk about mental pressure and intensity of focus, throwing in Olympic weightlifting is, is some of the, like, the, the highest intensity you can possibly get. So he's in Atlanta. He is, you know, this is like the, he's 37, I think, 36, 37. This is the last year he was number top two in the world. Ends up getting in the ring and throws a distance that ties the eighth place person. Okay. And what you do is you go to the second best throw to break the tie. So obviously he doesn't have a second best throw. The other guy does. So he's done. So now for, for, for anyone that is like trained with every egg in the same basket, I'm surprised he didn't just start bawling in tears right there. Like you just any his entire career was wrecked at that point. So the mental car crash that happens in that moment, I can't even fathom. 
So he's basically getting ready to leave. He's walking up the steps. Walk, yeah, and he hears his name get called, and he turns to the judge, and he's like, why is my name on there? And they was like, we don't break ties in the Olympics. So now he's probably got no more than two minutes, maybe only 60 seconds. He doesn't have a shirt on. His shoes are off. Dude jumps on there, gets in the ring, uh, basically doesn't throw any farther. Right. Then on the fifth round, he gets in, and he goes from ninth to eighth, right? And so for everyone, 70,000 people or whatever is in the stadium, they have one line, and the line is at 80 meters, okay? And that's a really that's like 268-ish? 262-10. 262-10. I never threw 80, so it didn't bother me. <laughs> um, I don't need to know that. So he basically goes from ninth to eighth, and this is – this, this ties very, very in with mental focus and that sort of zen-like intensity you talked about. The guy that was in first place was named Blas Kiss, and he had thrown the only throw over 80 meters. So that means all 70,000 people in the stadium, four of which probably understand what a far throw is in the hammer, right? There's one white line, and they can see that, oh, if you throw over that, you're good. So the, the guy sitting in first place had done this. Lance then leaves – um, comes back out and literally puts the ball in the same hole that, that Belas kisses and ends up losing by like six centimeters mm-hmm. or something crazy. So the ability to, to, turn that, to turn that around is insane. But then you, if you guys get on and, and you watch this on YouTube, you will see he gets out of the ring and yells and like puts his right arm up. You can see this huge vein coming out of his right Big fist pump. But like that's what we're talking about there. So that ability, you you said Stuart Toger. Um, if if Al Shotterman taught you how to push hard <laughs> mentally, Stuart Toger probably was like Al Shotterman, you know, like on steroids, yep. like way more intense. And Lance was able to sort of handle that intensity. And I don't think he would have been able to pull that off if he had not gotten that constant pressure from Stewart. It just it, it, like, he's the guy can press it down and Cole eventually becomes a diamond. Well, like you, if you're physically talented and mentally talented, you can handle that. Then the, the results are amazing. And that was the first Olympic medal for the men's hammer in 40 years. Mm-hmm. 1956, Hal Conley, yep. 1996. Lance yeah, it's crazy. Hill. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, go ahead. We were talking earlier about, you know, some of Jackie's qualities and how easy she was to coach. Can we let's just focus on me? No, let's (laughs) let's talk about her pen relays. And we're over there. We haven't gone to pen relays in years. And they're having a a really good meet over there. The pen relays. We're going to take Jax and Adrian. And you went over there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. uh, Chris Adams, maybe. So we go over there, and the and uh, there's a big D1 girls that Jackie's thrown against in the hammer. I was the only D2 girl in the field. Yeah, yeah. no. The, so the the way, just for for those of you listening that aren't involved in track, they basically seed each the group, and and at the at the the pen relays they have like this Olympic development section. And there's like only like nine athletes or twelve athletes or whatever. Yeah. The top twelve go there. Jackie's the only Division two athlete there. And they had, you know, I remember University of Florida. This is when Larry Judge Larry was there. Was and they had, yeah. like, a ton of throwers. So Jackie's the only D2 athlete competing against. These are post-collegiate people that are trying to make the Olympic. No, it was None only of- collegiate. Okay, so, only- so, so, all right, yeah, so it's all D1 collegiate. Yeah, the Olympic one was the next day because yep. Dawn Ellerby was throwing. Oh, yeah. that's right. That's, okay. So, anyways, throwing, so she's the only, yeah. the, the, just set the stage, she's the only Division Two athlete in here. So today. I'm along the fence line coaching, and it starts to rain. And the ring starts to get a little slick. 
and the girls are coming over and they are just whining to their coaches about the ring. And Jackie comes over and says loudly enough, and I think she did it on purpose. Um, Coach, you always say that a wet ring is a fast ring. And I said, absolutely, it's going to be a great day. And these other coaches are like looking at their kids like, listen to the Division II girl. So Jackie starts having a really good day. And now the Division I coaches are squeezing down trying to hear our conversation. We both know it. So well, she, you're standing next to the Olympic development coach. Yes. Yeah. So she stops over for her last throw, and she goes, what do you think I ought to try to do? I go, I got it. And all everyone leans in. I go, I think on this next throw, you just try to throw farther. And that was the cue. It was. That was the cue I and gave it her, and it worked. Well, but so, so let's talk about so – We can. Jackie was – also, we can talk about her in a second about how her ability to come up in a meet. I've got lots of great stories about that, of course. And I want to ask you if that's like – meaningful or significant or if it at the end of the day who if you win then that's all that really matters but for you jackie what was in your headspace there so judd basically was like coaching her so this was probably the sixth throw you get six throws and finally at the end he's just like just throw farther and she went in the ring and she threw farther and did you end up winning the meet i did so she ends up winning the meet with a cue throw farther which if you're into sports psychology is a terrible fucking cue right but he knew that this was going to work and so do you like what was in your head at that moment if you can sort of remember that well but i think so you said it's a terrible cue but i think it's the exact right cue because I mean, coach told us a million times, if he has to really coach us on meet day, he's not doing his job. Right. So if I'm in round six, so probably 10 throws deep at this point, including warmups, and you're still nitpicking what I'm doing wrong. We didn't do our job. I'm not in the right headspace to compete and win a meet anyway. So I think one of the things that still sticks with me is. You know, during training, Monday through Friday is when you put the work in. Saturday is the time to show everybody how hard you were actually working. And I really stuck to that. I don't think I ever, like, verbalized it. But internally, that was a really big deal to me. So I think by him saying, you just need to throw farther, that was just me. Like, I need to get in the ring. And it doesn't matter if it's pretty. Mm -mm. It just needs to go far. Pretties for practice. And it did. I PR'd and I won pen relays. Yeah. Right. And so... so you know, Jackie had obviously talents. I mean, you were what you were thirteen time All American, five time national champion, one more national championship than I have All Americans, we might add. Um <laughs> and you smashed, smashed the division two record um the first time that you broke it. So um, you know, when we're when you're thinking about like how you got ready for for like was there anything you because you had said to me judd before that like she comes up as much as you know any athlete that you've ever seen and what we're talking about by coming up is the distance that you're throwing in training right then you go to the meet she can throw that much farther i would say that even though she had physical talents the her x factor everyone's got one right that 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 performs at that level her x factor was her ability to compete under pressure Right. So there's we've got lots of stories we can talk about with her. But, you know, what like do you this is for either of you guys. Like, do you do anything? I mean, are you just are you like are you just gifted in that regard or or are you or even just think back like, well, what are the processes that you guys were going through in order to get ready to perform well? It wasn't normal. In 26 years of coaching, I've only had two. Her and Brent Fairbanks who I coach now, 
Brent can come out on Sunday and be 61 to 63 meters with the 16. And then we squat on Tuesday and the hammer's not till Saturday. And we have a Thursday workout and he comes out and we're seven throws in to ranging. And he's supposed to be ranging 59 to 62. And it's like 54, 55, 54. And I'm just like, I'm going to let it go a little bit longer. I'm going to judge his body language. And then I'm going to shut him down about 25% of volume early. We did that this week. That was his exact same workout. In the meet, 65, 50, lifetime best by a meter and a half. Somebody else comes out two days before a meet, and they're throwing 54 meters as a best. And somehow between coach and athlete, we know 11-meter jump is possible. That just doesn't happen. But that's how she did it. I can remember numerous times where she would come out and she'd be ranging the 4K between 50 to 53. Ranging is like a, a an easier throw. Uh, I know that statistically, butter chuck, it was 85 to 92.5%. I would tell you it feels more like 70 to 80, it 82%. Does. But it whatever. We're, but it's, it's a distance and it's the 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 speed at which you can actually work on technique, but it's fast enough that you can apply it to the, the cup. So she's range throwing. Right. So to make it more uh, pliable for people, she's throwing between 165 and 175 feet in practice, throw after throw after throw, and they look good. Okay. They look good, but the ball's not really going anywhere near her best. It didn't matter. In 90% of cases, I knew two days later she'd be ready to throw 200 feet. Well, this Jackie and I were training together, and we were both having a really, really – this is in the Olympic year, right? This so, is the Olympic year. <laughs> you weren't there. We had a meet at Akron that yep. weekend, and you weren't – because it was Friday. You weren't coming over, and we were supposed to go out, and you'd you know take this many throws with this, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> And literally, no matter what I did, I couldn't put a 50-meter throw together if my life depended on... No, mind you, it's I had under already thrown... 170 feet, yeah. yeah. I had already thrown the Olympic A standard that year. Which is mm. over 220. I couldn't throw 165 if my life depended on it. Like, no amount of caffeine, no amount of mental prep, nothing. Nothing. Her yeah. body, nervous system, whatever. I was just, there. I, was, I think it was just you and I training yeah, out of Yeah, it was just the two of us. And the next day... No, no, no. That uh, day, what did you tell me? Yeah, I looked at him. She's and I, dead. She I was, was dead. So mad. Dead fucking serious. Well, I think because you alluded to it earlier, the whole all your eggs in one basket thing. I was just literally at this point, I'd put every single egg I had in, in that one basket of the Olympic team. And I looked at him and I said, if I don't throw the A standard tomorrow, I'm quitting. She I'm wasn't kidding. Done. I'm done. I kidding. can't handle this. And I threw, I threw the A standard. 67 and change. I can't remember yeah. what the yeah. exact was. It wasn't yeah. my PR, but it was still the A standard. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm sticking to this. Well, <laughs> but you had said, so we'll, we'll stick on you for a little bit here. You had said to me, Judd, before that if you just rolled into practice and said, okay, Jackie, hey, we're going to test the 10 today, she would throw a certain distance. And if you said, hey, Jackie, next week, next Thursday, we're testing the 10, you had said that it's worth ten percent if At you just for her. if you just gave her that. So, 
was there anything you you might have to I don't think that you like sat down okay I'm now gonna like you know you know do my my meditation and my focus but think back when you were here so she's in college mind you so she and she was a, a good math student and like what were you doing or what were the things that was going on in your head was there like general excitement about that day oh my gosh yes um I mean testing days were the best um i mean you got to like pick what music you wanted to listen to and if coach let me know the day before i could pick out what literally what outfit i was wearing which is to some people think people are going to think that's ridiculous no you just don't get it if if you think that the outfit you're wearing doesn't affect like how you feel and and well, that's the whole thing is right it's like if i have an outfit on that i think i look good in i clearly feel better about myself i'm absolutely throwing farther so i think for me it was more about like setting the stage so i think part of it is coach did a really good job building my confidence in my throwing from the first day Mm. so I was, you know, reinforced and reassured. I mean, God help us. The first time I threw the hammer at Britt's house, like, yeah, or Britt's field, I literally thought you were gonna like cut my contract. Like, she she's hit, off. The she team. hit a. Uh, oh, this is the no, 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 no. That was an underground underground bunker. Yes, yes, yes. that hadn't been buried yet, and I lit like, like a fiberglass one. It made yeah. this huge sound. It was <laughs> awful, and but for like. Every time I threw, my confidence just got so much better. So I knew if he was telling me, like, we're testing the 10 tomorrow, that was him telling me, like, you need to get your shit together yeah. because tomorrow's an important day and we need we need it to be good. Because we don't do it that often. So no. when it's go time, it's go time. And so I think for me, it was just, okay, if he's calling me to tell me that, I know it's an important thing. So I'm going to get myself ready and do that. Yeah, I mean, because that, you know, the, I remember testing days and, you know, for us, you know, we would kind of know when it was coming up. And again, I was the same way. Like I knew like what outfit, you know, I think Jake Brooks had a specific pair of tie dye underwear that he would, he would wear. <laughs> and um, the copious amounts of caffeine. And I don't even know if energy drinks oh, were a thing back oh then. My God. No, I just, all the, the, what did Paul call it? Iron shoe coffee. <laughs> <laughs> so thick you can yep. float an iron shooter. This dude, great guy, Jake Brooks, would literally run the coffee. He'd make coffee, and then he would re-put the beans in it, more grounds, and then yep. he would run the coffee As through water. the coffee. Yeah. So but destroying like, his coffee maker. Yes. But d- making stronger caffeinated coffee. I know, but like think about like, th- we could just talk oh, gosh. just reminisce like that forever. About like just all the little things. Like like there was a like, caffeine dry heaves that yes. he would get on meat day. Yeah, I mean just I get- thought Jake was dying. Oh man, it was so fun. But like uh, back to the mental focus thing. So yep. that like yours was that you almost like you needed to like meet his expectations or or you were you wanted to please him or something like that like for me um you know there was like kind of an excitement about it and then i would just it was never intentional and i'm the worst of the competitors in the room here but i wasn't a bad competitor certainly not at the end of my career i would just be like constantly excited about it and like my brain if i think back it was always running a program about that day and, and i was never oh i gotta visualize this and and do those kinds of things but there was like i was always 30 percent of my brain was thinking about the competition or thinking about the test or whatever yep. what about you like you obviously also were you know were a great competitor and were able to throw well under pressure 
Um, what was the process that, that you did consciously or, or unconsciously? I think the process for me was I had a mentality that I kept a sheet in my training log of the top 15 people and I respected everyone on that list and I feared no one. And so I would look at the number nine guy and I'd be charting him and I'd be saying, this kid's been throwing like 220, 221. He just hit a 229. Like, is this the next Judd Logan? Is this the guy that I'm going to have to worry about in the trials three months from now that's going to make progress similar to me? So it was that fear. It wasn't even the guys at two and three that motivated me. It was the guys from 12 and up starting to push up on the top that I was looking for guys and said, these are the guys I've got to really was, watch. I mean, I, I say fear, but like, were you, <clears throat> you weren't afraid of them. No, I just but they were definitely, a, they were definitely, an, yeah, respect me because they were like a, some way motivating you to do this now. So, so Judd, um, what he, he referenced us. So there's a couple reasons he was able to work hard. One of them is that we mentioned before he was basically in the in the shadow of his his talented brother Jeff. The other one is was it the first year you went to indoor nationals? You basically you lost, you lost your bag, so your shoes and to borrow your buddy's shoes. You went to like Walgreens glove. and like bought like sweat sweatpants sweatpants. Gray. And a white T-shirt, right? And a white T-shirt. So, he, so all the stuff that we just talked about, like you know, the, the outfit that you're going to wear, gone. gone. And you showed up, and I think you threw like 66 or 67 feet yeah. in, in the weight. Didn't make finals, or is that true? Did make finals, but 67 a quarter inch. Yeah. So nothing, nothing all that far. And then the next year, 75-3 national champion. Right. So then the next year, so that that phantom person. I think motivated you constantly. So he wasn't necessarily worried about any one individual. He was worried about what he meant by the next Judd Logan was the guy that comes out of nowhere, the dark horse yeah. that we, we always talked about the dark horse, which is like, Oh, we don't, you know, I don't know that guy is he's like 12th in the, in, in the country. And then the next year he's suddenly throwing, you know, near world record distances or yeah. near American record distances. That was the thing that he always was sort of like afraid of that. Mo is that correct? Yeah. A hundred percent. And it never fully manifested itself. Nobody, you know, Lance's was slow and steady. I would say Ken Flax was the Kenny one Flax, yeah. that, you know, he he went 238 in his opener his senior year in college, 248 at the Pac-10s and 258 at the NCAAs. 238, really 248, 278 meters. It was yeah. the American collegiate record at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, so like there was a guy that all of us saw coming. And then when I had a chance to train with him, I said, this guy's going to be sharing teams with me. I've got to make sure he's not the one knocking me off teams. Yeah. You know, so like one of my things that my mentality was when there were more than three guys that could keep me off the podium that could keep me off national teams then that's when i would know it would be time to be done so after i ended up getting my ass handed to me and not making finals in 82 and 83 i said you know if it doesn't work out this year then you know i'm done 
Well, I ended up getting second in the Olympic trials. So 84, 85, 86, 87, 88, 89, 90, 91, 92, and then 97, 98, 2000. All of those never finished outside the top three. Not one single year, not one single USA trials, USATF championships did I ever finish outside the top three. And there were other guys that had shots. I mean, I finished third a couple times and only won by an inch and a half. You know, the Olympic trials in 2000, I threw 250 feet on the warm-up. Uh, who was it? Who was on? That was Lance. You, Kevin McMahon, and Kevin McMahon. Yeah, great guy. Yeah. So, Lefty. I'm on. I'm on the warm up field at 41 years old. It's my birthday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I throw 250 warming up, and Bert Soren's dad's there because Bert's comparing. He goes, Judd, that was 250. I go, yeah, it was every bit of 250. We go in the stadium, and I'm not feeling 41. I'm feeling 31. Right. They come in, they go, ladies, gentlemen, we've got a little bit of a delay. Oh, this is going to lead into my next question. The, Great. The first flight of Hammer just hooked one over into the long jump. They're now going a long jump, a hammer throw. Ugh. A long jump, a hammer so that, throw. So that basically, for those of you that don't know about throwing that, that's going to just stretch the competition out super, super far. So go We ahead. sat in a hallway for <laughs> 50 minutes. It was just great physiologically for warming. You tried to do what you could, but when I went to stand up to go out on the no. field, I fit, felt every bit of 41. <laughs> so I'm You were in, a little bit more stiffened up. Than yes. The- <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in third place. Going into round five. This is back when we were still allowed to wear headphones. Um, I'm in third place. Kevin Mannon mm-hmm. jumps me Columbus guy, in actually. round five. Yep. And I'm like, okay, you're in fourth. This is now real. Well, I don't even realize it. I put my headphones on because I'm going after Mannon. He's not taking my spot on the Olympic team. Jerry Ingalls from the Army yeah, he goes ahead of Isn't him. Isn't he like seven twenty, seven foot twenty? He's a big kid. No, go ahead. He was all of six six. Yeah. So I don't even realize I'm in fifth now. I walk into the ring for my last throw. I go, I got to beat Manon. I've just got to get this spot on the Olympic team. The A standard will take care of itself. I've got four weeks to get it. Yep. Go over to Europe. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome into the ring for his sixth and final throw. Today is his 41st birthday. He's currently in fifth place, Judd Logan. And as I'm winding, I'm looking up at the scoreboard, and the pendulum is up, and I see Ingles is ahead of me. Now, oh, I, Ingles passed you also. Yes. So I'm in fifth. Yeah. Right? And I see it with the pendulum. They announced this. So this is a- mid-throw, everybody. So basically, you basically you, you take the hammer, which is essentially a handle with about a 30-inch long wire and then a steel ball in. What they're describing is he's casting the ball up. Now, this is the initiation of throw. He's got about two seconds. It'll yep. come back. He's going to wind it twice, probably. Yep. And then he's going to initiate his throw. Once the throw is initiated, it's just go time. 1.8 seconds. Yep, 1.8. So he's, what, we're just, what he's describing here. He's basically casting this up. So he's a long jumper that's three quarters of the way down the runway. And And then he hears that and notices that he's in fifth, not in fourth. So continue. And so I make this throw, scream, let it go, contort. I can't even find the video. It used to be on YouTube. I'm contorting my body in all these weird positions. And it lands. And I see Jerry Ingalls looking, looking. And he turns to his family like this, and he yells, I'm going to the Olympics. 
and the mark comes up quarter inch two centimeters ahead of him oh my gosh quarter inch i'm on the olympic team he's not i go over to switzerland have five meets lined up third meet throw 75 20 nail the a standard boom home olympic team age 41 jeez but in that moment i had to process that information and it was that goes back to that internal dialogue like technically it, it didn't matter I mean, I'm sure I bent my elbows. I'm sure my head was leading it in. I'm sure both got, of those things happened, but too. But I got to the end of the throw, <laughs> and I just put literally everything I had, like trying to snatch more weight than you humanly could do, but you're going to try to throw that weight over your head, and that's what I did. But I actually think, like, so, you know, in, in moment, I've not been in that exact moment, but I've had moments like that. That decision to pull that off is made before your brain is aware that it's made the decision. Agreed. I, I like you know I think about it. You have to train for it. You have to literally make your subconscious brain make these good choices. Yeah. And when you think about the subconscious brain, it is already decided. It's all all that stuff that you just described, you know, that you're going to go as hard as you can and put every single ounce of energy into that ball before you're cortex your 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 brain actually could recognize that that decision is being made it's done it's like and on the reverse if you're if you didn't do that your brain and i've done i've had throws like this so you go to throw your subconscious brain like that that internal dialogue has said no you're done this this isn't happening and then i can take the cortex and go no fuck you i'm gonna finish this throw it's never as good it's never even close so what's amazing is i think the the mental battles are won and lost in the subconscious. They're not won and lost. Like, in the beginning, if you're telling yourself, like, oh, no, I can do this. I'm going to get third. I can do this. You have to do that early on for hundreds of hours in training to reinforce and coax that subconscious brain to make these decisions. But, like, when you cast that ball up, you reacted to, oh, no, I'm going to do this. Yep. And that, that's the thing, like, you know, the, the mentally, we're good. We're good. Um, mentally, like, you had to actually have been doing that for months or years or, you know, even longer. It was a process. Yeah, I mean, it, and it's, it, it's... And it can be learned. It totally I can really be learned. I really believe it can be learned. I would say that I, because, I mean, you, you saw the, like, I represented the full spectrum of... Yeah of uh just mental ability like at the end of my career it was funny like when i was um i i wasn't putting that same kind of pressure on me and that's what allowed me to actually perform well in these competitions and and then get much much better um in terms of like my my national ranking the other thing that we could kind of like pivot and talk about is is when you're talking about well what are you thinking about so you said i'm just going to throw this thing as far as possible like in that moment you just described what were you thinking about when you cast that ball up? You see, oh shit, I'm in fifth place. W- were you thinking about turning your right foot? Were you thinking about pushing the ball? Or were you just thinking about it's got to go farther? The same thought process, and it might not have been the same words, but the same thought process was the same as when I got diagnosed with leukemia. I turned to my wife and I said, I'm built for this. Yeah, but that, again, like that's just the, that was I'm the reaction. Bu- I'm built for this. This is my reaction. If anyone in our family, Jeff, Whitney, Andy, Amy, Dina, Katie, go on and on and on. If there's someone in our family that is built for this, 
It's me. Let me take it on. Let me handle. Let me show people how to kick cancer's ass, right? But at that same time, I didn't say built for this, but I knew I was. Yeah. yeah. I knew I was. I was built for this. So it's just, it, you know, it comes all the way back to my dad playing catch with us in the backyard. So, that, so that's what I was going to say. So, so you, you had this, like, I had to work incredibly hard to get to a place where I could actually do that. Like, my subconscious brain would, would react positively to um, potential threats. Like, yeah. oh, shit, you're not going to make the final. You're not going to do this. And I could go in and actually perform well under pressure. So, you know, when, you know, I, I mean, I think that there's got to be just some just natural ability, but like, you know, with your dad or, or like, to me, it was focusing on successes, no matter how small they were in training. And by hyper focusing on those continuously in my training book, I used to write at the bottom, like the things that were going well, as I keep reinforcing those things every day in training, the subconscious brain just starts to just naturally focus on those so that when I go to a competition, then that's what that that reaction it, it happens the way that it's supposed to. What about with you? Like, did you have to do anything like that, or did you naturally just focus on the positive things when you're going in to compete or when you're training? Well, Charles Poliquin once told me, and he wasn't the first one to say it, but you are a representative of the four or five most people that you spend the most time with. Okay, you become. You become stronger when you surround yourself with better You're people. fucked, Jax, by the way, but go ahead. Continue. So when I look back at like different time periods, when I look at the time when you were here, Jax, Adrian, Derek, Joe, Chris Adams, AG, like I couldn't have been around better people, more like people. And then you guys moved on. And then it might not have been the athletes, but then I started to develop relationships with guys like Louis Simmons and Matt Wenning and uh, Ryan Fanley and Jance Footit, and started going to the strength weight training injury specialist convention up in Canada and listening to all of these people that are just crazy, crazy smart. And I started surrounding myself with those people. I then realized that growing up, my father always had me around positive people. And then when I met Al Shotterman, and then we started developing this bond in this training group and the job that he was doing. I was just always blessed to always have these cycle of people that entered my life. And like when I was writing the some thoughts on my book, I started writing names of people who influenced me. I, I got 30 like that. I mean, so fast that people that actually had very, very positive influences in my life they may not have been in that first level light giver like Shotterman was, like Toger was, but then that second level of people like you, like Jax and Adrian, and just all of those people that I had the opportunity to build my own confidence by coaching, to build my own confidence by having training partners, um, you know, all the way back to John McEwen and Darren Zaylor and uh, Dave Duchesne, all the people that I trained with. Memory uh, lane right there. Yeah. It, it's just, and here's what happens to a lot of great throwers. They leave their their collegiate program, and now they're going to go train post-collegially with their first shoe contract 
on their own without their support system. Their five it's becomes brutal. It's brutal. The five becomes these five new people. Chances are not as good as the five you left. Yeah, and that in that regards, not only that, but you're you're with the team, but you're not you're not doing the same training no. that they're doing. So even though you're in the weight room with them, you know they're maxing out in the back squat, and you're just kind of like sitting there doing your own thing. Yep. So I want to get Jackie involved with this because just like the 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 story that Judd described, you know, in the 2000 Olympics, Jackie has a similar story where I, I think it was your second indoor national champion. Uh, indoor nationals she basically was coming in i can't remember if she was ranked second or third or fourth or whatever but um the way throwing works is you, everybody in the competition takes three throws everybody in the competition takes three throws and then they will take the top nine and they put them in reverse order and that's giving the person that threw the farthest in the first three throws the honor um and the advantage of having the last throw so so Jackie go had thrown the farthest in the first three throws, so that means that she was going to finish the competition, and she had the ability, or, the, or at least the, the, the positioning, opportunity. To, the opportunity to respond to anything that anybody did. Okay, and there was another girl. I think she was North Dakota State University, yeah. and her PR was sixty-four feet, if I remember correctly. You had already PR'd by a foot to throw sixty feet, right? It, Help me out with the numbers we here, Joe. Boston. Yes, we're in we're Boston. Boston. We're in it's Boston. It's your sophomore year. It's your sophomore year, and so the the point. I guess the exact numbers don't matter, but the the girl that was sitting in second place had a PR that was a personal record that's much farther than Jackie's, and Jackie had already thrown a personal best in the first three rounds. Because that's what we did at nationals. Because that's the rule. That's what you do at nationals. <laughs> so she is then just like you in in two thousand. The the girl from North Dakota State on her last throw throws like 61 feet or whatever like that and, and throws over a foot beyond Jackie's newly acquired five minutes ago one foot PR. So now, you know, a week ago, it's two feet farther than Jackie's ever thrown in her entire life. Now, for those of you that don't know throwing, that's like a, it's like dropping your mile time by 20 seconds. I mean, it's just crazy. Significant. So she's sitting in the back of the ring. And the announcer, she's standing there, she's holding the weight, and the announcer says, oh, up now is Jackie Jessling, who, you know, just, you know, was was passed. She needs to throw over a one-foot, you know, personal best to win the meet. And she gets in the ring and winds the ball and, and throws over a foot farther and wins the meet. So she found out, just like you, casting the ball up. You had a little more time than he did. But, you know, Judd, you're casting the ball up, and you go, oh, shit, I'm in fifth. You're standing in the back of the ring, and the announcer announces that you just lost your lead, and you need to throw over a foot PR to actually win the meet. So, you know, let tie in with what we were just talking about with that subconscious reaction to those scenarios. Like, what was going through your head, or was it just throw farther? It doesn't matter. I think for me, it was always just throw farther. It doesn't matter. Like, I really believe training set me up for so many of these situations. So coach not letting us dump throws i mean how many times did i execute a throw under pressure in practice a lot of times i mean granted i was only a sophomore at that point so maybe not as many but it was just i think the confidence level that i i mean honestly like who wants to throw anywhere but ashland in 2000 in 2002 i mean i feel like i was here in the heyday and and through that whole training group 
every day we were just establishing a confidence base that was so good that I didn't hesitate for half of a second on the sixth throw, my last throw of the competition to last walk throw, in. Best throw. And yeah. and literally throttle it. Yep. Like I didn't hold back at all thinking, oh, I might no foul. Fear. No, no. House money. I would rather fall out the front of the circle trying to win this thing yep. than, you know, lose by six inches. Yep. Well, I can't remember what the exact line was, but you had said either to to me or maybe to her, I think it was to me, and it was the last throw, and you were like, win the meet or foul trying. Right. Like don't like don't don't be standing in the ring with a throw that's, you know, two meters below what you need to throw. Fucking throw the meat and win the meat. Yeah. Or and or or or, or foul trying. Yeah. I got that. I got that line from coach at indoor nationals my freshman year because I was fourth going into finals. I mean, the fact that I qualified for nationals was a huge, huge. deal. I mean, I was weak as a church mouse then. Um, and so we get to the last round and he literally looked at me and said, win or fall down trying. And I fell down. Yeah. I yeah, literally in Indy. fell. I remember in my sixth round at nationals, my freshman year. And then a year later, National I win champion. on my last throw. Yeah, I really think you know your guys' stories are, of course, much better than mine. But it, that that training the subconscious brain is kind of where it's at. Now, you, I th- well, I, I mean, I know Jackie obviously really well. She's my wife, but she, you know, she, you're naturally always positive. So, like, you you just naturally have this positivity that probably got converted you know by judd by watching him train and by him coaching you into this confidence in your throw on a subconscious level so this is not like you're oh i can do this you know i'm gonna i'm gonna do it i'm gonna throw far it's just already there like waiting for you yours maybe because of your dad being around all those amazing people it took decades did decades you know like you know you know to find that confidence well but to train that subconscious brain. And that's that that's the thing. Like for me, I didn't have that. I mean, I, I had a great childhood and you yeah. know, loved my mom to death and I was around a lot of amazing people. But because of that, that gap that we talked about a little bit earlier, I didn't have that. So for me, if when I was in the middle of a throw, if something went wrong, I was instantly like trying to shut it down and then my I would say, No, I gotta finish my throw, but it's already lost. Yeah. Like the subconscious brain was like, Yeah, you can go ahead and finish it out but like we're not going to actually get after it whereas you guys i think had that i had to go through that process of you know year, months and months and months and years and years and years of just saying like okay what were the positive things this, this goes all the way back to that that rule like all right rich tell, tell me tell me something positive that happened in that throw and you start in the so in, in the conscious brain and over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reps you just start actually believing that and i think that it's that that starts to just sort of soak into the subconscious and once you can start changing the positivity or the language of that that internal dialogue now you can start reacting pot like properly to those those events or those moments yeah and that positivity and that last throw best throw thing to me with my athletes that i have now it's what I try to preach to them. It is all about body language. And I've when I get upset, I, I'll look right at him. I say, God, I would have loved to have competed against you when I was competing. I would just torture you. Because as soon as I see your head go down or as soon as I see you kick your glove across the ring, I would say like, yeah, man, tough day, all of us. And then I would just eat you alive. And they go, what are you talking about? I go, you don't ever let your competition 
know, like you have to have this positivity about you that when that throw goes bad and we've all thrown them into the cage, we've all hooked them. You have to like, you know, punch your hand one time and go next row or forearm the cage or that doesn't the cage. <laughs> You know, I remember no. jo Johnny o Johnny O'Connor <laughs> went to the uh, World University Games with Ken Flax, and Flax goes, "All right, I need you to dish on Judd." I train with him, and he's so positive every day about every throw, and even when he's had a bad day. He'll tell me the two best things that he got out of it and what's going to get better. And Johnny looked at him and he said, Ken, every fucking day. And he goes, so it's not an act. <laughs> and Johnny goes, no, dude, I train with him every fucking well, day. But to tie it into the focus thing that we started the, off the conversation with, I, I almost think that the positivity and the focus sort of marry together because, you know, you – you have this focus and you want to do something. And we didn't get to talk about the difference between short-term intense focus, like the squatting thing, or that long-term, you know, maybe we can finish the conversation with the goal-setting thing, like four years down the road. You know, with programming for four years, when you're, when you're trying to make an Olympic team in 2020 or 2004, and it's 2000, your mental approach changes. But when you... When you're thinking about that, I think that that intensity and that focus kind of like come together because you want to you're like, OK, I want to throw this distance. I want to win nationals. And so for you, you naturally were just positive for that. The, another one, a guy that you coached for many, many years who made lots of is A.G. Kruger. I mean, I trained with A.G. And it sort of like makes me laugh inside because he even if you knew he was throwing like shit. He saw it as a sign of weakness to admit anything that was not positive, right? So I remember one day, and I don't even know if this is true, so AG, by all means, shoot me a text and tell me if this is bullshit or not. But you were throwing, like, absolute dog shit two, two days or the day before a meet. And he goes, oh, I love it when I throw, like, shit for the day. Always, always comes back the next day. And I was like, bullshit, man. You're throwing, like, shit. Your body looks like ass. You know, in the back of your back of his head, he had to think like, "Oh God, I'm gonna I'm gonna tank tomorrow." But in that moment, we're sitting at Brits, and he's and he looks at me and tells me, "Oh, I love throwing badly the day before." Like, and, and I can't, I don't know if that's actually true, but it's very, very indicative of what we're talking about here. Like, he refuses mm. to be negative, even in a moment where it'd be super easy to be negative. You know, and, and I think that that's another reason why did he make three teams? Yeah, and there's. <laughs> So many versions of that story that are true. Like, I remember the first time he threw 70 in training. He'd, he'd already thrown 75 meters in a meet. But now it's the fall, and it's snowing. Yeah. And he finally hit 70-20 out at the farm. Joe and Derek are tanking, and he goes, man. I knew I would hit it as soon as the weather changed and it started getting cold. <laughs> exactly. And Derek and Joe wanted to jump his shit and beat the piss out of him yeah, right there. Yes. That's so AG. You did not throw 70-20 today because it was 29 degrees and flurries. You would have thrown 72 had it been 45. Yeah. It was just coming, right? But in AG's mind, no. 
No, this is where I get tough. No, yeah, this that's is, but, this is where I beat you. But that's and a, he believed it. He totally did, and and he, and, he, and he was an amazing athlete because of it. But like, you could just I, I can just see his body posture and and, and oh, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So let's I know you got to go here in a second. So let's finish with we, we we spent a lot of time talking about you know the intensity and the focus and all that kind of stuff. The other thing that you did really really well was obviously train for for four years, right? So the 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 mindset for somebody that's trying to set a goal that is literally four years away is entirely different. So let's finish with either goal setting or whatever you want to talk about. But like, bring me through the mental space when you're like, okay, I got to get ready for the you know not eighty four Olympics obviously, but let's say the ninety six ninety two Olympics. Yep, Barcelona. Right, you were already a, a very well, like well accomplished athlete, probably top ten or twenty in the world, and you're, you're it's now 1988, and you're training for the 92 Olympics. You know it's in Barcelona. What are you doing in September of 1988 after the Olympics? You're just sitting there waiting, and you got to get ready for a meet that's four years away. Analyzing what happened and what went wrong in the last four years leading up to that cycle meaning that i spent that entire fall analyzing that i threw 81 88 268 feet eight inches in april went to the jesse owens meet and threw 258 went to the olympic trials and threw 248 went to the olympic games and threw 238 oh i didn't know that and then had iliotibial band surgery one week later because they said I had an 80-year-old's arthritic left hip where the IT band had become so tight from overtraining that it had pulled through the bursa sac in my hip and that you were done. I mean, they gave me a shot over there in my hip. It did nothing. (laughs) I was so far gone from overtraining because I threw 81-88 in April, and I had no idea that— Which was the American record at the time and his lifetime PR. yes. And I tried to hold it. And when my training distance started to get down, an extra Vivran, an extra no-dose. Yep. And, you know, I was doing some crazy, cream. Crazy, crazy plyometrics, tons of NASADs and, you know, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Yep. And, um, you know, I didn't want to make that mistake again. So I spent the first year rehabbing from that surgery and then... As I was building up in, uh, I remember in, uh, what was it? I think 91, I started thinking about returning to three turns because they had, I had seen this biomechanics research that had shown that ball velocity on my four-turn throw at the world championships was faster in three than it was in four. And that if I would have just let it go in three, it had gone farther than it actually did at the world championships. I only missed finals by 80 centimeters. Which is a little backwards for those of you listening. Yeah. There's really two two style throws that you can do at the world level. One of them is a three-turn throw, which is far less common. It's more common with, with early athletes when they're learning. And then, I, I mean, now 98% of all world-class throwers are doing four turns. But the world record is still But the world three. record <laughs> is still off of three turns, and Judd is built – perfectly to do three turns so at the time for him to sit there and look back and go okay we got this biomechanical data it's showing me that i'm not accelerating the ball in four so why the fuck do a four 
turn. Yes. And now, now he has a three-turn throw, and you don't have any fear of fouling with three mm-hmm. turns. You can go as hard as you want. And so you decided, like, I'm going to make this major technical shift all because of the data that you got from the previous four-year cycle. So the first two years was all about finding a way to stay healthy and not make the same mistakes that I'd made in the last Olympiad. And then Charles Poliquin entered my life, and then he took over. What a relief that I could focus just on the technical model, followed him, and like Jackie believed in me when Charles told me things were going to happen, even though he knew nothing about the hammer, they happened. He goes, you'll probably break the world record in the weight indoors, as I understand it. My first throw, 80 feet, a quarter of an inch over the world record. The only problem was Lance was two throwers before me and threw 80 foot nine and broke the world record <laughs> before me. What a we bastard. both threw over 78 feet, which is what the, what the world record was, but he did it first. Yeah. But we both threw over 80. Yeah. And, you know, so um, just building that confidence up learned took me two years to learn how to really take care of my body. Well, so so this is when Poliquin came in and we could do an entire podcast about Poliquin because he obviously influenced me quite a bit as well. But um, I always think about when you want to get really good at peaking an athlete or training an athlete, it's like making good wine like you try this stuff in the beginning like the juice like that's only like a month old out of the out of the grape and then you have to be able to tell like a year later like "Mm, no i should probably change this so you make these like changes in your training and they don't manifest for months so you like when you when you went and looked back what were some other things that you did in your training now if poliquin was doing the weightlifting stuff yep. we can talk about that some other time but did you ch- you obviously went from four turns to three turns but did you say oh i need to throw more heavy balls or more light balls and you just tried to figure out the things that prevented you from performing well in the last cycle yes and then are you thinking of it as like all right well i'm just going to do it this year and then we'll reassess or are you thinking okay i got the next 2 years to get this down and once i get this down then i can do that how like Yeah, I can start to think about a medal. And so I started looking at talking to all of the best throwers in the world, and I started formulating an idea, and I already knew a lot of it when you were here, is what balls have to go how far to make this. And it's not the same for everybody, but there's some pretty good generalities. And so that I knew for me that I had to be the the, the athlete that had balance. I need to have... The heavy ball that predicted 80 meters, but I had to have the light ball that predicted 80 meters. I remember Tor Gustafson, he had the the heavy ball that predicted 83 meters, yep. but he had a light ball that predicted 76 meters. So he threw 80, but he never threw yeah, where he should have thrown because his light balls never got to the point where i had where yeah i I, I always i always tell athletes that like um well henry right now um an athlete that that jackie had coached um who's now over at penn state but if if one so you got you have your 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 range throws right then you have your a light ball you could pick whatever one you want and then you also have a heavy ball if only the heavy ball is saying that you're going to throw 70 it's possible it's possible to throw 70 or if only the light ball is suggesting it, it's possible. But the if both are of them are not strong enough, right? Yeah, but both of them are doing it. Well, now it needs to do. Or a lot of times, you know, you, then it's on you. Yes. Yeah. 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 Once once, once your range throwing's there, your your heavy ball and your light ball, you better get that shit done. Then it's on you. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I don't know if you have anything else to add. I know we could talk about this for hours. But well, I mean, you guys know I've already moved practice back 15 minutes. Oh. Uh, originally scheduled oh, yeah. for 4 o'clock. But my athletes come first. Yes. And if you chop this up and put it together and put it out there and you realize I didn't get to half the stuff we Well, I got to, lots of stories. Then I, then I would say, let's do it again. Yeah, we right? could definitely yeah, do it again. I want to do it again, but I want to do it with some of like the current athletes. Yeah. I want to know... What's, What's different now? Yeah, because well, you're still having success, right? But I want to know, like, how is it different? What does it feel? Yeah, like? we could All we that. we could do that again because the, the I'm glad that we 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 spent so much time on the mental aspect because I do think that that's something that you were exceptionally good at, and certainly Jackie was good at that. Uh, that a lot of people, if they just think back to your career, even people that competed against you, they just weren't aware of that. Like maybe right. Kenny Flax figured it out. I was like, man, is this guy always this fucking positive? Um, but the other stuff I wanted to, we'll just sort of like maybe allude to later on is. You know, what has changed in how you're peaking athletes? What about in the weight room? And then we could dig into, like, you know, what we did. Basically, the whole question comes down, like, too, is could I have, like, could I hang now? That's all I want to know is if my distance my went then, would I have been good enough now to still hang with the women throwing? My answer is not. <laughs> so I was a two-time national. I was I was definitively the best Division II thrower in 2000. Mm. And I remember, I can't remember what year it was, but I looked at the, the list. When you guys were at the conference, I, was like, I wouldn't make the fucking conference. <laughs> like, it was like five guys yeah. that threw farther than I would. Was like, like, I was the best guy in the country in 2000. This must have been like 2008 or something like that, where I you had, had five, three guys over yes. 70. Yeah, five over 67. Jeez. Anyway, yeah, so I, I so got good. in and out at the right time, and I had a good time learning it. But anyway, mm -hmm. so yes. we'll just set that up maybe sometime. Maybe we'll focus more on um, strength training, programming, you know, Poliquin's influences that are maybe still there. Yep. You know, maybe you maybe kind of drop. That could be a really interesting one. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again. We'll get the views on this or the listens or the likes or whatever. We'll get this up and uh, make people want a second part. That's right. That's right. I like that idea. So, And, and, and actually, if you can leave some comments – uh, Judd's a wealth of knowledge in terms of programming. So, you know, he sort of learned a lot from many, many people, but one that's probably the biggest influence is Poliquin, I would assume, for, for training. Uh, Poliquin is also a big influence to me, and writing programming is some of my favorite stuff to do. And I learned it basically from taking programs that I got from Judd. I, I kept all of them. Judd made us keep these, these uh, training books. We still have them in we our We still basement. have them in our basement. Can't get rid of them. Yep. And then we've got that Charles Poliquin, you know, we'd get like some Louis Simmons programs or whatever. And I actually went through and just wrote out how many sets and reps and total tonnage and percentages. And I just analyzed the crap out of that. And so I would be really interested to know, like, well, what is different about your 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 strength training with your athletes now um, compared to what we had done later on? So this has been awesome. Maybe that'll be a little bit of a, a preview but uh, the sun is shining, and Sunday training was one of my favorite things on the planet. Yeah. So uh, we'll get you out to practice. All right, man. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Coach.